The Dice Girls have wrapped up their campaign and we're going on a new adventure with a new DM. Like, really new. Yep, she's brand new to DMing and not nervous at all. Does anyone have a reason why we should not play this game? Because <laughs> I'm open for anything. <laughs> I mean, she's totally prepared for this. She planned out absolutely everything. Yeah, where are we? Oh, I didn't come up with a name. Los Angeles. Um... <laughs> <laughs> this is Los Angeles, but the locals call it L.A. <laughs> and she knows that us, her players, we're going to take it easy on her. No shenanigans, no giving her a hard time or anything like that. Sit, she says, gesturing to the kitchen table. Are there chairs? <laughs> There's the four table. chairs. Yeah, there's four chairs. So I can sit on the table, but... <laughs> Yeah, come listen to us learn how to play Quest. We're the Dice Girls, and we definitely know what we're doing. This April, Nearly Roll Players is launching Vigil the Great Fire, the newest installment of their ongoing supernatural mystery series. A demon of annihilating flame has been stalking the English market town of Sheridan since the 1850s, and in the Great Fire, it finally reveals its endgame. In time, everything burns. Vigil is Mealy Roleplayer's epic supernatural mystery story powered by the Monster of the Week role-playing game by Michael Sands. It's a tale of the misfits and weirdos who step up to protect their neighbours from things that go bump in the night, after the government cuts their small town's official team of monster hunters. With a big rotating cast and a thoroughly English take on Monster of the Week, Vigil is supernatural meets Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy. Scroll back through the back catalogue of Mealy Roleplayers to Playtime Act 1 to catch up and meet all the characters before their luck runs out. A quick content note here before we begin this episode of What Am I Rolling? This episode's one-shot, The Between, is an unavoidably dark game. Murder, body horror, dark sexual themes, spiders, threats to children and animals, foul language, blasphemy, witchcraft and defiling corpses are all things that come up in this game on a fairly regular basis. If you have suspicion that these game's themes are not for you, then this one-shot is probably not for you either, and that's perfectly fine. If you're not in the right headspace just now, please feel free to stop listening and come back if or when you're ready. Thanks again, and stay safe, my friends. Hello, and welcome to What Am I Rolling? A twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast, hosted by me, Fiona. This week, I'm joined by my friends Nat, Strat, and Helen some of the cast from the Merely Roleplayers podcast, and extra special guest GM Jason Cordova for The Between, a tabletop role-playing game about a group of mysterious monster hunters in Victorian-era London. In The Between, the players take on the roles of residents of a place called Hargrave House, and it is their job to investigate and neutralise monstrous threats terrorising the city threats that Scotland Yard won't or can't handle themselves. As the story progresses, they become aware of the plans of a Moriarty-style criminal mastermind, which they will eventually have to face in order to save Queen and country. The Between is directly inspired by the gothic TV show Penny Dreadful, but also takes inspiration from other British horror classics, graphic novels such as From Hell and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and pulp-era stories. A massive thank you to Jason Cordova, the game designer behind The Between, who ran the game as a special two-part livestream for the Wear Twitch channel back in January. Jason is also the creator behind Brendelwood Bay, a cosy murder mystery RPG, 
as well as the recently released analogue horror RPG, Public Access. As well as designing and writing game content, Jason also founded The Gauntlet, a community that celebrates tabletop RPGs. Alongside running hundreds of online games every month and hosting a podcast network dedicated to the discussion of tabletop RPGs, The Gauntlet is also a publishing group, which puts out the Codex magazine, as well as games such as Trophy and Hearts of Wulin. You can find out more information about The Between and Jason's other work on The Gauntlet website. I'll add links to it on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. The Between is powered by the Apocalypse, meaning its mechanics are inspired in part by Vincent and Megge Baker's Apocalypse World. It's also carved from Brindlewood, meaning the mystery mechanics and procedures are inspired by Brindlewood Bay. Jason does an incredible job of guiding us through the between. Going through the structure of play, explaining the different playbooks and moves, as well as being an excellent GM. So I don't want to dwell too much on how to play here, because frankly, he did such a great job, there's just no point in competing with it. The key thing to remember, though, is this. Whenever a player makes a move, they roll 2d6 plus a modifier from one of the five abilities. The five abilities are Vitality, Composure, Reason, Presence, and Sensitivity. Once they have rolled, they will check the result against the text of a move. If a move refers to a hit, it means a result of seven or more. If a move refers to a miss, it means a result of six or less. Moves also frequently have success tiers, normally going in this order. Miss, 7 to 9, 10 to 11, and 12 plus. Essentially, the higher the result, the more successful the move was. So, as you may have guessed it, this one-shot is a little bit different to our previous one-shots we've done here at What Am I Rolling? Two things. Firstly, I'm not running it. Second of all, it was a live stream game originally broadcasted over two evenings on the Wear Twitch channel back in January. This episode's audio was taken from that live stream and edited down ever so slightly to be more friendly for a podcast audience but you can watch the original stream on the Wear YouTube channel. I'll put a link to it on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. Many thanks to the cast of Merely Roleplayers for joining me on this one shot. Merely Roleplayers is a podcast where theatrical people play role-playing games in the pursuit of maximum drama. You can find all things Merely Roleplayers at merelyroleplayers.com or search Merely Roleplayers in your usual podcast app. One last thing before we begin. Naturally, there are times in this one-shot where the players, and myself, mostly myself, get the rules wrong or forget something plot-wise. Whilst we always endeavour to stick to rules wherever possible, at the end of the day, we all make mistakes, and what matters most is that everyone enjoys themselves. So, with all that out of the way, let's play The Between. So I like to kick off with a procedure called CATS. Um, CATS is an acronym that stands for Concept, Aim, Tone, and Subject Matter. And the basic purpose of it is just to establish some expectations at a basic level for what this game is and what we're going to be doing today and tomorrow. And so the concept of The Between, um, The Between is a tabletop role-playing game about a group of mysterious monster hunters in Victorian-era London. Uh, These hunters learn about various monstrous threats in the city. They conduct investigations in order to neutralize uh, the threats. Over time, they become aware of the plans of a criminal mastermind who is pulling the strings behind the scenes. Um, 
The hunters will eventually be forced to confront this criminal mastermind in order to save Queen and Country. Uh, the Between is directly inspired by the TV show Penny Dreadful, but also takes inspiration from British horror classics, the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, pulp era media, things like The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and From Hell, uh, stuff like that. The game's mechanics are based on Apocalypse World and Brindlewood Bay. Uh, you don't need to know anything about those two games before we start playing, though. The Aim. Uh, the aim of the characters in the story is to keep London safe by investigating monstrous threats and learning how to stop them. Our aim as players is to learn more about these characters' mysterious pasts, as well as to paint a vivid picture of our version of Victorian-era London, which is a responsibility that we all share. The aim for today's session is to introduce our characters, learn the basics of how the game works by playing it, and then having a debrief at the end. Uh, the tone. The tone of the between is dark, mysterious, and sensual. A little bit of levity or humor from time to time is okay, but we will always try to return to that dark, brooding place the characters exist in. Uh, finally, subject matter. A lot of this is not going to come up for this two-shot, but it is worth pointing out for people interested in the game, I suppose. Uh, subject matter. Uh, murder, cannibalism, body horror, uh, dark sexual themes, erotic sensuality, threats to animals and children, foul language, blasphemy, witchcraft... <sighs> defiling graves and corpses are all things that come up frequently in this game. <laughs> Take wow, a which, which one um, first, Jason? Yeah. <laughs> Sweetie box. <laughs> We're going to talk about safety tools in a moment, but uh, in the interest of establishing some basic expectations right now, that's uh, that you should know that the game generally deals with some dark and intense subject matter. Okay, speaking of safety tools, uh, no game is more important than the people playing it. We are going to paint a dark, unsettling portrait of Victorian-era London, but we're going to do it in a way that respects everyone's boundaries of safety and consent. In order to do that, we'll be using some safety tools. We have the open-door policy, uh, the X card, and lines and veils. Uh, the open-door policy is fairly simple. If you need to leave for some reason, uh, you, you may. You don't have to explain yourself. The X card, we've already talked about that off mic, uh, but it, it's available. And then uh, Lines and Veils. We have handled Lines and Veils in the Character Keeper, but for people who are watching the video who maybe don't know what Lines and Veils are, Lines are things that we just don't want to have in the story period. It's just not subject matter we care to do. And Veils are things that we are going to um, not role play. Uh, so we, we're okay with it being in the story. We just prefer not to focus on it in the role play. And so I like to put mine out there as an example. Um, we'll have sexual violence behind a line. Uh, I don't want sexual violence in the story, so we're not going to do that. And then I, I like to put torture behind a veil. Um, I'm okay with torture being a thing the characters do. I just prefer not to role play that. But we have other lines and veils, which we're not going to say right now just to keep uh, to maintain privacy, but uh, just be mindful of the safety, uh, the stuff on the safety tab of the character keeper. And so... Normally here, this is all a scripted part in the game, by the way, that I'm doing, but normally here's where you would do character creation, but we've already done that. So instead, I'm just going to kind of skip ahead a little bit and share a few details about the setting. So these characters, these hunters, they are the current residents of a place called Hargrave House, which is a mansion on Belgrave Square in London. Uh, the people who live there share the common goal of defending the city from whatever dark forces are lurking in its shadows, be it monster or murderer. They operate outside of official channels, frequently tackling cases that Scotland Yard can't or won't. Importantly, Hargrave House existed long before the characters took up residence there, and previous residents were doing this same kind of work. 
by the time we join these characters, they have already been living and working together for a time. Um, we don't dwell on how they came to live at Hargrave House, nor do we care about who owns or funds Hargrave House. Um, we may learn about those things, like if we were doing a long-term campaign, but for now, just know that Hargrave House um, just is, it is a thing. Another thing to know is that these characters are to remain mysterious. This is a really important part of the game. Uh, we should avoid talking about their pasts, both in and out of character, unless we're prompted to do so by the game's rules. The reason why we do that is because we want to learn about these characters as we play. It's a little bit like watching a good TV show, right? Like we don't learn everything about the characters in a TV show all at once, unless it's a bad TV show. Uh, the information is given to us in pieces, right? Um, at dramatically interesting moments. That's kind of what we do here. Now, normally I would do a summary of all the playbooks, but we don't need to do that. So I'm instead going to skip ahead to introducing characters. So we're gonna go around the table and everyone introduce your character by name, look, and vice, and that's it. Um, <laughs> if you want to, you can tell us what your playbook moves do, but I'll leave that up to you. That's kind of your choice. But name, look, and vice is what we want to kind of focus on. And everyone else, be paying close attention um, because we're going to go around again later and get a little deeper into the characters, and we will all be responsible for essentially decorating their bedroom at Hargrave House. Oh, my uh, God. Putting, putting stuff into their what? room, right? So just be aware of that. It's the Sims. It's the Sims. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Teddy bears so, and fairy lights for everyone. With a goth family all over, I love it. <laughs> Let's start with, we'll start with Nat and Wild Rose Fletcher. Well, hi everyone, I'm Wild Rose Fletcher. Uh, I'm playing the the American character sheet. Uh, we, we made this joke off air before the stream that uh, Jason was coming over here and writing about some kind of fantastical version of Victorian London, so I'm I'm paying back in kind by playing some fantastical version of uh, an American character. She is always just a little bit dirty. She's got cheeks that just a little bit smudged with dirt and grime. She's wearing the um, the, the sort of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen style, like the corset bodice over a shirt with the very tight trousers and, uh, and a big duster over the top. You'll occasionally see her smoking, but when she pulls out her cigarillo case, it is surprising. Given like she looks a little scruffy, but uh, but this this cigarillo case is is pretty pretty shiny and expensive looking. There's a couple of jewels inlaid in there. Um, she also has uh, has a little uh, bolo tie around the neck that's got a little turquoise inlay, and uh, just little little pieces about her that make you think there's something a little bit off about uh, about this combo of looks her vice now not many people will have seen this i suppose because she's still quite covered up but she has uh, quite a few tattoos on her body fabulous thank you uh we will skip the factotum because that's what is the appropriate thing to do with the factotum and we shall instead <laughs> go over to Makes sense, makes sense. <laughs> the fact always goes last. Let's go over to the undeniable Miss Eve Astria. Mm, interesting. That'll be me. Um, Eve uses uh, she, her pronouns also. She is um, known at least across London and probably far beyond for her 
outstanding beauty. She has luminous skin um, and these beautiful green eyes. She's a strong presence in a room. She has fabulous curves. And her vice is extravagant spending. <laughs> and I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, go into any detail of what she might be spending extravagantly on. You're going to have um, lots of opportunity to spend extravagantly today, so nice. that's good. Um, I should <laughs> and there's, and there's no treasure score, so you can spend as much as you want. So, oh, God. oh no, that's on the company card. Oh, we don't no. track gold. We don't track gold pieces in, in between. So fabulous. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you done, Helen? I didn't cut you off. You were. Um, no, I just I realized I should mention that she's always wearing gloves. Mm, good. Let's go over to Strat and Jonas Hart, the Legacy. Yes, so uh, Jonas Hart is um, a big man that, if you were to see him, he'd be trying to draw attention away from himself. Like he's a big man, but but hunched up. He would walk with purpose and with confidence, but would be trying to keep to the shadows and avoid attention. He wears uh, a maroon-stained black leather coat. He always wears that coat and seemingly always wears all of the other clothes as well. Um, he has vein-like scars up his uh, arms, and they just poke out up onto his neck. So they're kind of mostly hidden, but if you were to look closely, or if he were allowed to let you look close enough, you'd kind of see them poking up. And uh, also, if you're observant, you would notice he was uh, missing his ring finger. His vice is laudanum. Not a great one to have. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I don't think so. Let's go finally to the factotum, who is not a resident of Hargrave House, but who does live there um, and answers the door. So, Granson, do yes. tell us about you. Yes, so uh, uh, I'm playing Granson. I'm glad you said the name of the playbook, because I definitely pronounced it differently in my head. So that, that shows where I am. Um, but yes, I'm playing Granson uh, in, in service to uh, uh, Jonas Hart. Uh, I want you to imagine a, whereas Jonas Hart, you've described him as like a big guy who's quite small. This is now a small, tiny woman who's quite big uh, in a sense of like her presence. I like to imagine that she, uh, so she's wearing a, a uh, what did I put that? She's got a black dress on with little magpie detail, uh, a simple wool scarf, just sort of covering up a little bit at the top, but she always has her black umbrella not open all the time, because that would be very silly and improper. But every time she goes out, whether the rain or shine, the umbrella comes out. I like to think so, that she just appears behind uh, Jonas' heart at random points. And it's like, Jonas. <laughs> just like, ah! <laughs> so that, that sort of genuine sort of... It's a woman of very few words, uh, but is quite serious. And it's definitely um, looks after her employer quite well. Her vice which seems an opportunity to this sort of serious demeanor is uh, comedies. Uh, so she can often be seen strolling out on her off day, maybe down towards uh, the local vaudeville. And she's like, got tickets to see the next uh, Oscar Wilde play, uh, Importance of Being Earnest, and is in the front row for most nights. <laughs> Fabulous. Let's go around again. Wild Rose Fletcher. So here, everyone pay close attention because when I'm done, you are going, everyone else but uh, Nat, is going to say something we think might be found in uh, Ms. Fletcher's personal quarters. 
at, at Hargrave House. This is essentially like your starting equipment list, but it doesn't have to be like items that you can carry. It just is something that you think is interesting, okay? And so Wild Rose Fletcher, you grew up in the big city on the eastern seaboard of the United States, the scion of a prominent family, but you detested that life, the formality, the pretension, the venomous hypocrisy. And so you went west. You had adventures, got good with a gun, even joined a traveling show for a time. But then came the curse, and everything changed. You did your best to control it, and some nights were definitely worse than others, but eventually it got to be too much. Even your days were affected by the changes within you. Your behavior became reckless and unpredictable, and then you had to run far away. In the end, it was London calling, a thick, throbbing mass of humanity within which to lose yourself, the whole world and all its lovely pleasures right within your grasp. But the curse has found you like it always does. Hopefully these new folks, these hunters you've thrown in with, can help you, help you for good, permanent-like, when the time comes. And so with all that said, the rest of us get to say what we think can be found in Wild Rose's rooms. I will note that Wild Rose already has a, uh, well, I don't know if you have a gun yet, Wild Rose. <laughs> it was. <laughs> no, you don't. That was an option. Yeah, but you, yeah, yeah. So, so a gun is an option. Yeah. Can I have one anyway? I will give you a gun. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say. Good at it? Oh, what? yeah. I'll say you have a. Um, can we just ask for uh, guns in this game? <laughs> yeah, you can take a uh, take like a six shooter. Uh, I don't. Sure. I'm sure there's a. I can get you a brand later if you want. But that's that's a good start. I, I won't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like a pew pew, please. <laughs> and Strat, Viona, and Helen can all get to say uh, one thing as well. If Wild Rose was in the circus at one point, there would definitely be a uh, unicycle somewhere, um, probably under the bed. <laughs> but, but it would be like, like a, almost not as big as a penny farthing, but definitely a ridiculously big wheel size compared to a normal modern day unicycle. Uh, something else that is in the room, uh, I think nailed to the wall, is a horseshoe. The, an old used shoe from a uh, a horse you have fond memories of back in back in the states, and it travels with you. I think um, Rose has a thesaurus. Potentially, this thesaurus has the middle cut out, and there's something inside it. Oh. But um, I'm just going to state the thesaurusness of the thesaurus. Helen, you're giving me a magic item that is nothing and yet everything. Thank you for this gift. Fantastic. Let's go over to Eve Estrella. Oh, Eve, you have always been the most beautiful person in the room. Your looks have opened doors for you for as long as you can remember. All the money and material things anyone could want laid at your feet. Artists have found inspiration in the brightness of your eyes, the delicate curve of your cheekbones, the plump softness of your lips. One such artistic work, a masterwork, rises above them all, for it captures the essence of you. It is, quite simply, more you than you. Lately, people sacrifice everything to be near you, to please you, and if they're lucky, to touch you. But what to do when you get bored with being one of the gods? Well, you go hunt monsters at Hargrave House. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you get to do. Now, with that introduction, what do we all think could be found in Eva Estrella's no doubt palatial rooms in Hargrave House? 
I think, a fabulous, and I think the word fabulous is underlined and circled with stars all around it, yeah, a dressing think. table. Like the most mm. ornate, the most ridiculous, like a hundred drawers all filled with, with various bits and pieces. Mirrors everywhere so you can see every single inch of you. Probably yeah. takes up one entire length of the wall. Yeah. It's oh, so wow. vast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to think that none of us even questioned that this room was going to be Ava's room. <laughs> like that. We all saw it and were like, all right, that's her. That's yeah, of course. Saying, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not going to fight it. I think that she's got the uh, the little black book to end all little black books. <gasps> Ooh. Oh, like contacts throughout the city. Like, she just mm. knows people, and there's a good portion of them who owe her a favour. On one of the various, like, many coffee table-esque type things would be a huge book, which is just stuffed with, like, artist drawings of, you know, uh, of admirers sending her stuff, and it is packed full, you know, watercolours, uh, charcoal pencils and stuff, and it's just massively, and she just keeps it there. Whether it's looked at or not is a different matter, but yes, just all, basically fan art <laughs> is what we'd call it but um of beautiful drawings as immaculate drawings of the finest of the fine of either i think you have i think you have the crown of helen of troy what <laughs> just sitting on the nightstand <laughs> <laughs> next to her hairbrush and her diary exactly <laughs> just a little, little trinket yeah. Little trinkets sure. I've been given over the years. It's her actual what? nightcap. <laughs> I don't feel I can throw a tantrum about not being given a gun now. Um. <laughs> Jonas Hart, Hargrave House is filled with monster hunters, but you're the only one who was born to do it. Your parents, their parents, and their parents before them have known one thing, reveling in the destruction of ungodly beasts and carnivorous terrors. Your family name has been whispered in secret meetings for generations, passed along to those in need of your hereditary talents. You were taught how to hold a blade when you were a child and completed your first hunt not many years after. Your knowledge of combat and trapping is unparalleled, but you've grown disillusioned with your heritage. You want to be more than just another entry in a long ledger of death. You want out, but you have one last score to settle first, a curse of sorts. A beast that's haunted you and your family for as long as anyone can remember. Prepare to say your family's vow. And I will tell you that the vow is, like all of the playbook moves, if you read them in order, that's the vow of the Hart family. What do we suppose can be found in Jonas Hart's, no doubt, utilitarian uh, quarters at Hargrave House? There's got to be somewhere, probably stuffed in a drawer, out of the way, definitely not on show family portrait mm -hmm. like a small one yeah is this of jonas and his parents or of or maybe maybe it's one of those smaller expected to go in a lot yeah maybe that's it it's a locket with a, a little picture of your parents in it mm -hmm. and whether jonas would wear that or shove it at the back of a drawer never to be looked at up to you back of the drawer you have the still beating heart of the first vampire in a black velvet box. 
think I'm going far too mundane with this. I know, we're like, have a book, <laughs> have, a, have, a, have a thesaurus. Oh. <laughs> Underneath your bed, Jonas, you have um, possibly one of very few items that was given to you as a, a either as a, a, a festive gift or a, 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 like a birthday gift or something, and it was a pair of slippers that are monogrammed with the family crest on them. What every good Monsanto needs. That's what I think. <laughs> I'm sure Jonas will find a way of killing something with them. <laughs> Slap them together. <laughs> Game flies. <laughs> I think a carriage clock on a mantelpiece. Initially, I was thinking wooden, potentially with some space in the back, but I'm changing my mind, and I think it's more of a hefty metal thing. So what I have in my mind is a beautiful Victorian version of that clock that they used to offer to give to people when they moved their retirement plan over to them on the adverts on the TV. That is potentially too niche a British reference, but (laughs) so Jonas has got like a nice glam version of that rather than like a free TV version, but like heft. Sure. Carriage clock, hyphen hefty. And last but least is Granson. Granson, you had a life before you entered the service of your employer, but the details of that life are unimportant. All that matters now is the person you serve, Mr. Hart, and Hargrave House, where you will grow ancient and die if you're lucky. More likely, your employer's colleagues, these hunters, will be the end of you, overturning things that should remain hidden and goading on terrors that dwell in dark places. You'll do your best to help them, of course, to keep them alive, Because without them, what are you really? And so we put things in the humble servants' quarters of Granson. I think uh, you have the contract that you signed with Jonas that is, uh, of course, signed in your own blood. As is the way. As is the way. I'm trying to think of all the possibilities now of something like... I think you have some kind of some kind of little wooden carved trinket that was part of an occult ritual that you never speak about. Mm. And that is it's in the shape of an of an animal that's quite unusual to have been seen at this this time in this place. So maybe it's, it's something like a hyena or something like that. Cool. I think you have, like, a monster manual. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think you have, like, a book of that, like, details, like, various monsters that the hearts have, like, hunted over the centuries. Maybe, maybe Jonas himself doesn't care about those details, and so you sort of maintain them. I think Branson has a, uh, like, a doctor's medicine case. In my head, it's like a cross between a doctor's leather bag and like a jewelry box that folds out. Oh, great. Um, and it's not all necessarily standard issue medicines of the time. You might have things from further back. You might have things that other people don't know about yet. You might have things only you know about. Oh, man, this is awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. That is character introduction sorted. 
now that we've met the characters, we are ready to play. I'm going to go ahead and sort of introduce the game and kind of kick us off with our first phase. And then probably once we're done with that, we'll take a little break. I do want to say, though, that this is, even though this is a game that's set in a historical time period, uh, we aren't going to dwell on historical accuracy. Oh. We'll do our best to represent the technology and culture of the era, but we're going to get some things wrong every now and then, and that's okay. I'd also like to point out that during this time period, people with marginalized identities would likely have been treated very poorly in society. Uh, we're going to ignore that part of history. In the world of the between, uh, things like race, nationality, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, disability, and neurodivergence are not necessarily a social barrier. Are there any questions before we begin? No, I'm just excited for well that we did our sim house building and now we get to live in it, so... Yeah, <laughs> Hargrave House is an old Gothic Revival-style building. It stands out from its neighbors on Belgrave Square, which are done in the more conventional classical style. Hargrave House is also different because it's not just a residence, but a place of work. Dark work. And some more of that dark work has just landed on the doorstep. Now, if you want to follow along with this, click over to the tab that says Threats, and I have put the summary of the threat there, in that mm. first column. Mm. <laughs> here we go. The Spider Silk Seamstress. Among academics... Sir Richard Harlow was a well-regarded, if eccentric, scholar of folklore, known for his vivid storytelling and far-fetched theories. To Hargrave House, he was a trusted friend whose expertise in fey lore and magic proved invaluable on numerous occasions. The news of his sudden death comes as a shock, even more the manner of his passing. Sir Richard's body was found at his desk, strangely hollowed and preserved, wrapped head to toe, in delicate silver thread. What's more, he was set to present a summary of his life's work at the Blue Feather Society, a private salon where curious minds explore the more esoteric subjects not discussed in formal institutions. Sir Richard was convinced that creatures of the Fey realm, or the other crowd, had infiltrated London, and he supposedly had new evidence to support his theory. Ms. Abigail Walker, chair of the Blue Feather Society, reveals that Sir Richard had been courting Miss Hazel Beaumont, a mysterious seamstress whose magnificent fashion designs, and apparently her company, have proved irresistible to a number of London's artistic and academic elite. Each one of her suitors have also vanished, though their bodies remain missing. Now, I have to look at the Hunters tab and see who among you has the highest sensitivity score. Eve has a one... And so does Jonas Hart. Oh, so I shall pick and say Jonas, or Mr. Hart. Hargrave House is familiar enough with Fey magic to recognize its manifestations in the manner of Sir Richard's death. How do you know that Miss Beaumont is no human, but a dangerous Fey creature in disguise? It's Aurora. Every time I get close to her, something just feels off. She looks too like she belongs, like she's almost trying to convince people she is who she, she says she is. It's subtle and it's not something you pick up unless you're in the trade for a while, but it's hmm. it's there. It's like this little itch in the back of your head that just won't go away. Excellent. Now, the way this game works is I'm going to present you with questions, and each of those questions has an associated opportunity. 
the questions are essentially the, what you're trying to, to solve. That's the mystery of what you're trying to solve. And you'll be investigating and collecting clues, and eventually you'll come up with a theory of the case, depending on which question you decide to pursue. We have three questions for the spider silk seamstress. All of them are just different ways of solving this problem. Some of them are less complex than others. Um, the ones that are less complex have a more dangerous resolution. They're more physically dangerous. So you have to kind of like make a decision about that. But the least complex question is, how is the creature ensnaring her victims? If you answer that correctly, then you can resolve the threat by allowing one of you to be lured by the seamstress as bait and then capturing or destroying her. Easiest question, hardest resolution, most dangerous resolution. <laughs> the next question is, what is the creature's true name? That allows you to resolve the threat by learning the creature's true name, gaining power over her, and dismantling the binding rituals which sustain her in the human realm. I'll note that fey names can take many forms, and we'll sort of, your theory will decide whether that's a fleeting series of images, a song or poem, a word unknown to human tongues, that kind of thing. Fey names are not just names, they're ideas, concepts. That's complexity six. The most complex question is what does the creature truly want? This allows you to resolve the threat by striking a bargain with the creature in accordance with ancient fey customs. And so those are the questions that are being pursued. There is also an aspect of something called the Janus Mask, which I'll talk about later, available on this particular uh, threat, which is called the Mask of Glamour. I'll discuss the Janus Mask in due time. We're gonna do the day phase. Gameplay in the between is divided up between four phases, day, dusk, night, and dawn. And day is probably the most similar to like any other role-playing game. You just wander about and we, you investigate things, you do whatever you want to do. And then we have, we roll dice and kind of see how things go. Dusk is kind of like a, like an upkeep preparation phase for the night phase. The night phase is a very short, fast and feral phase. Um, very like scary and intense. And then the dawn is like our sort of, um, that's truly like the upkeep phase. That's when you get your experience points and all that kind of stuff. You each have selected dawn questions on your character uh, sheet. Mm -hmm. What you're trying to do is at the end of the session, the questions that you've picked, you are trying to, you want to role play so that you get to, so you answer yes to those by the end, right? By the time we get to the dawn, you want to be able to say yes to those things that you picked. Mm -hmm. So just as an example here, Jonas, your selected Dawn questions are, did you loudly curse your family's name and did you revel in the thrill of the hunt? As long as you do something, as long as you do that before we get to the Dawn phase, you're good. You get experience for it. There's also Dawn questions that everyone has available at all times, which are different uh, sort of different, like basically scenario resolution things, which we'll talk about as we go. But the two that you pick are the ones that you get to kind of role play towards. When we get back from the break, we're going to do a day phase. Mm -hmm. Think about what you want to do. I'll kind of tell you what your leads are right now, just to remind you. Sir Richard was found at his home, dead. So you can certainly go there and see what's going on at his house. He was also meeting with Ms. Abigail Walker from the Blue Feather Society to give this presentation. I'll also tell you a sort of extra lead that tonight is a party called the Midsummer Masquerade. And it is well known that Ms. Beaumont has provided outfits for people who are attending the Midsummer Masquerade. And so that might be maybe, maybe finding some of those people 
or going to the party tonight itself. You can also go to Ms. Beaumont's shop on Savile Row if you wish. So these are all different leads you can take. In future uh, like sessions, i.e. tomorrow, <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll have more chances to sort of, you will have stacked up some conditions and that's when you have scenes with each other to get those conditions cleared. Mm -hmm. But for now, the focus is really on the investigation. So if we could just take a five minute break, yes. that would be fabulous. It's the day phase. I like to say that the day phase belongs to you and the night phase belongs to me. So this is your phase. Let's see what we want to do today. We're gonna to go around the table and I'll start with Mr. Hart. How would you like to proceed this morning and afternoon? Straight to where it happened. I need to get a sense of what was done. See the blood. Find yeah, that sounds good. Sir Richard's, um, I think he has a townhouse, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see here. Sir Richard's flat. Very good. Granson, are you going to go with Mr. Hart, or are you going to do some other business? No, absolutely. I will go along with him. Even if, he, I, I guess, like, you're putting on your coat or something, and I just appear behind you already ready with my umbrella. <laughs> so, <laughs> shall we? I'm already going. You better keep up. Always. And then you cut to, like, a, a wide shot of, <laughs> of big Jonas Hart, and then a small... A smaller silhouette of uh, uh, grandson going behind. Fabulous. Wild Rose, what are you doing today? Well, I have a suggestion, but it kind of depends on what uh, what Eva wants to do. Well, if this Miss Balmont is known for her elaborate styles and the the fanciest of gowns, well, you ought to be in them, surely. Absolutely. Let's go shopping. <laughs> Well, you can do the shopping. I'll be watching your back. Can't have a lady going into such a situation all alone, like, can we? Thank you very much. Fantastic. Why don't we start with Mr. Hart and Granson? Normally, if you had were in the, like if your characters had collected conditions and needed to talk them out to get them cleared i would give you a scene like in the cab on the way or whatever but that's where your vices come in play mm -hmm. basically you kind of do your vice with another character in order to clear conditions <laughs> um but that's not a concern at the moment so mm -hmm. we shall just go straight forward to sir richard's flat when you walk in and you have access to it no one's going to stop you uh well there's a there's a maid and she'll just She's probably too distraught to try to stop you. Uh, there are books and papers stacked from floor to ceiling. They make a sort of nest surrounding a large mahogany writing desk, a dusty cabinet of curiosities, artifacts from a lifetime of travel, a simple wardrobe of plain tweed suits, and a bed rarely slept in. I'm going to pose a question to you all called Paint the Scene. Paint the Scene is a question that I pose to all of you as players in order to... Um, uh, the answering of it explores an idea about Sir Richard's flat. And so the question for everyone is, Sir Richard was clearly obsessed with his work. Now I'll remind you, he was a folklorist. What signs indicate he had uncovered new proof of his theories? I think attempts to um, record the explanation of the proof. So I'm thinking uh, scrunched up um, paper in a bin, a messy writing table, potentially empty ink pots. Um, so there's like a 
a sense of franticness around the writing desk area, but there isn't there isn't anything to find where there's a partly written sheet or anything. There's just evidence that a lot of writing has happened, and anything finalized is elsewhere. I love it. That's great. That's really cool. Everyone gets to speak. I think uh, just to build on that, I think not only is there writing there, but there's as with all these sort of things, there's like um, drawings and illustrations, but like partial. And so maybe, again, similar sort of thing ripped up, but there's definitely on the wall more groupings of certain like individuals or, or something like that with like maybe crosses through them and question marks and and the images themselves. At some point, if you look around, it, it, it covers the whole walls, these little bits of paper, and they some, some of them maybe mesh together to make bigger uh, creatures and stuff, maybe like actual size depending on on what you're looking at and stuff and it's almost like a like almost like a, a magic eye image perhaps and if you step back you see the whole uh maybe network of different things but it, it looks scribblings like almost like childlike scribblings in a way if you see like a child's had a dream and then drawn it so uh, equally in the sort of childlike but also terrifying if you see what i mean yes. i think on the desk amongst all this mess and seem like scrolling and, and whatnot is a short thin branch with a single leaf off of it and at first glance it's like oh it's a little little twig <laughs> uh, and then as you move around it in the same way you get unnerved when paintings eyes move fully around the room as you walk around it it shifts and it moves and maybe the the colors change and maybe they're not colors you recognize or have never seen before and then it's back to just being a twig and you forget about it and then you turn around and you spot it again and it just slips in and out of memory and every time you see it it's slightly different i love it on one of the walls there is a display case and he's not gone full rack of taxidermy but what he does have <laughs> is different feathers that have been pinned to a board that's in a glass display case, but one is missing. Oh. Mr. Hart and Granson. The maid, her name is Jenny Snell. She has wild curly locks. She wears a simple maid's dress with pockets and has, well, I would say a haunted expression, but she also probably has something of an embarrassed expression given the state of the place. She greets you. She does not have the wherewithal to stop you from coming in um and yeah what do you two do she's just sort of she's kind of in shock about all this whole situation she doesn't stop you from coming in and taking a look around or questioning her or anything she might even think you're from scotland yard at first right <laughs> the body's been taken away already is she i'm guessing she's not necessarily in the room is she like sort of in the corridor or is she like is she, where is she in the house if you see what i mean well, she sort of like um, follows you around and she'll kind of say, uh, are, are you here with Scotland Yard about Sir Richard? Is that what this is about? We're investigating it, yeah. Mm. Have you touched anything? And you moved she anything? looks around at the state of the place and <laughs> probably wonders why that's even a concern of any sort at all. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, she says, um, I just I, I was told that some people from Scotland Yard would be by and that I should let you in. Uh, and you've done the right thing well done so you haven't you haven't moved anything you haven't tried to clean up you haven't 
done anything. This is as it was when the corpse was found. Well, I had very strict instructions from Sir Richard not to ever touch anything. I didn't really have much of a job at all, truth be told. Okay, good. Renson, talk to the maid. I'm gonna I'm gonna circle the room. I just like to slowly hunter's gaze yeah. on, on every little bit and leave the help to talk to one another. Mm-hmm. Let's trigger a move here. So if you want to take follow along with the moves reference tab, this is the information move. When you search for a clue, conduct research or otherwise gather information, describe how you're doing it and roll with an appropriate ability. I think you're probably using reason by just kind of examining the room, generally speaking. So go ahead and roll 2d6 and add your reason score to it. Okay, so that's 2d6, and I have a reason of zero. So here we go. Uh, it's a four. <laughs> four. That is not good. As you are looking around, Jenny Snell, she grabs you quite suddenly, Granson, by the shoulders. Oh, and she says, oh, oh, I don't feel well at all. So, some, something's happening. I, I... And at this point, you see something stretching her throat, a puffing, undulating ball of flesh, something black underneath. Oh, my God. And before you know it, a spray of viscera-covered spiders explode out of her mouth all over you, Granson. Yep. (laughs) She falls down quite dead. Unless, Mr. Hart, you would like to mark the Janus Mask. This game has a mechanic called the Janus Mask in which you can choose to mark either the Mask of the Past on your character sheet or the Mask of the Future or the Mask of Glamour, which is available from the Spider Silk Seamstress. You do what it says, and I will give you, I will make your die roll better, and poor Jenny Snell will not die from spiders crawling up from her. Her, her torso <laughs> from her neck. Who's going to clean that up? Oh, it's probably going to be me. <laughs> I'm already. I think. I think. Whilst she doesn't die, if 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 uh, a strat does say this, I'm still going to get covered in some way. So I'm braced for that. <laughs> it's up to you, Jonas. Let's, let's go for it. I don't know how the mask works. Let's yeah. use the tools at hand. Let's, so the mask uh, of the past is probably the one I'd start with. You you mark the first box, and that's your okay. first opportunity. You don't have to do it yet. What it says. But it's your first opportunity to start telling us about your character's past, right? And so mark it and think about it for now. Instead, your die roll is a seven to nine, not a four. And you'll get a clue. Jenny's safe. We'll talk about the clue in a minute. Granson, I it sounds like you are going to try to chat up Jenny. That's at least what yes. Mr. Hart said to do. So what do you what do you say? Uh, yes, I'd be like, um, Misk, please. Let us um, show me around the, um, the flat and let us see, like, and, and ask her about like where she was, like try and just distract her from the room, maybe even take her out of the room and check like, like that, windows yeah. and doors and see if there's any forced entry. Like not necessarily I'm asking about what she where she was in the in the nice sense, like what was she doing, etc. rather than like distracting her from the um what what was found in the You can do the information move with presence since you're sort of uh, it's already established that this is a sort of like social class thing and then also you're kind of trying to keep her calm and stuff yes. well, I will do that so I don't have anything in presence okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to roll that oh but that is that is an 11 oh very good nice. yes I will 
go ahead and tell you this. You're going to get your clue. Mm -hmm. If you want to mark the Janus mask, you can bump it up to a 12. And a 12 on the information move means you also find what's called a mastermind clue. Now, in a two-shot, it's not as important, but if we were playing the full campaign of the between, this is how you get closer and closer to figuring out the bigger story behind it all, right? Um, but it could be fun to do just to do, so. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll yeah, of course, of course. I, I want to feel the, the joy of getting a 12. Yeah. Absolutely, so yeah, I will invoke the uh, Janus mask then. Very good. We'll come back to the scene with your clues in a bit. Mm -hmm. Let's go talk to Wild Rose and Ava. This feels like a odd couple situation to me, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm interpreting that correctly, but that's my sense of it. I have a feeling, given that we know that Wild Rose is frequently dirty, uh, that Wild Rose doesn't go to Savile Row very often. Um, <laughs> whereas yes, sir. Ms. Astria probably uh, is very well known, right? So let's let's talk. Savile Row, of course, vibrant, bustling storefronts, tailors laboring by lamplight at night, relentless displays of luxury and excess. Let's paint the scene, everyone. They say a perfect fit makes you feel like a new person. How do the wares on display at the various stores tempt you to reinvent yourself, even assume a new identity? If at all. Maybe Miss Astria always wants to be Miss Astria. I <laughs> well, I'll leap in here straight away with a detail in the sense of, uh, with several rows, it's windows and windows and windows, but they're... The mannequins uh, in the windows, they are at certain heights, they're deliberately positioned so that when you look in, you see your reflection with the suit or the uh, the outfit on them. No matter, you know, if you're slightly sh shorter or smaller, there's always a outfit for you, and it's deliberately done so. You can see as you pass lots of headless <laughs> mannequins in these beautiful outfits, and as you look in, then you see yourself in this beautiful outfit as well. Nice. I think... Honestly, for for Rose, it's sort of the opposite effect. She's walking down and seeing all these outfits that feel like the world that she left, and it's more of an analytical... I can see that they're all costumes. Every single one is a costume. It's not a person. It's someone that people want other people to believe them to be. So I guess... For her, they all look like opportunities rather than something that she actually aspires to be. And then in terms of general world walking by, I guess, yeah, I like that they're all at the, the right height. I think there's, um, there is a, a millinery as well that does, uh, does hats and each one leans a little bit more towards the, the ascot end of things, which I know is a later thing, slightly later, but eh, thereabouts. So I think there is, um, there is a hat shop that's got these uh, beautiful, like, miniature top hats, silk hats with all sorts of... Some of them have, like, fruit on. Some of them have a taxidermy bird. Some of them have, like, a bit of lace coming down. So whilst the normal clothes feel like costumes there are also clothes that are more elaborate and definitely leaning towards costumey wow as well very cool obviously it is a visual feast this right but i i think the, the shop owners play more on more than just 
your vision. I think they're, they're playing to the other senses. Um, and I think out front of all the shops and all the, the doorways are bouquets of fresh flowers and incense. And as much as they can do to cover over the general smell and malaise of London, which would permeate even even Savile <laughs> Row, um, it's still got horses going up and down it. Um, so yeah, it's 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 almost sickly sweet because London is, you know, the height of its stench <laughs> in, in Victorian <laughs> times. It's kind of this weird floral sweet thing mixing with the the standard smell. So it's really a a true assault on on your nose. Hmm. While everything might be a costume to other people, it doesn't feel that way so much when you are always the star of the show <laughs> so um it's um i think what's most enthralling for eva and and those like her would be the color the richness of the blues whether we're moving from um maroon into burgundy just like that there's everything is vivid but if you are a regular you can see that this mannequin has changed from a, a green velvet jacket to a a brown tweed <laughs> and uh, yeah as you were talking jason the, the sense of this is an area of london where you might actually see some vibrancy mm. was uh, what sprung out to me the most thank you all everyone well, Ms. Beaumont's shop is at hand. You can certainly go straight there if you wish. It's available and open to the public. Wild Rose, what do you want to do now that you're down at Savile Row? I'm going to take one of the flowers that's been left out to disguise the smell. Not really looking to see if anyone's like, ah, my flowers you are stealing. I'm just <laughs> going to take one, um, pull the stem in half and pop it in her hair. She's got um, sort of uh, dark brown hair that's sort of plaited in a... A neat, it's not a hanging down plait, it's been braided and then kind of swooped up so it's sort of a hanging knot at the nape of her mm. neck and she's going to tuck the flower in slightly and sort of do a half little like smudge of the, the muck on her face and you know I think as we approach the shop is going to take off the, the big black duster and stash it down behind a crate in an alleyway mm. somewhere nearby the shop and then as we get close is gonna switch from this sort of loose casual eyebrow cocked to something that's a little bit more trying to affect a slightly more perky personality uh, i know we've not really seen a lot of wild rose yet to sort of see the contrast but there is there's the difference between, um, just hold on one second there, Eva. <laughs> Hair in there, flower in there. All right, well, why don't you just show me some of these fabulous dresses you've been telling me all about? <laughs> um, is all of this an attempt not to embarrass me? Well, I don't want to stand out too much, and if I'm your wide-eyed and, uh, you know, slightly uncouth cousin from abroad, then perhaps mm. we might be able to sell the facade somewhat more. 
Well, um, just to try and keep those light fingers of yours in your pockets and we'll get much further. Oh. I don't know what you could possibly be talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go inside, shall we? Eve, I will tell you that you have kind of some trouble getting to the shop because various shop owners and seamsters and seamstresses, tear tailors and seamstresses will come out when they see you and they'll say, Ms. Estrella, please come in. You have to see this fabulous new plum brocade we just got in. Oh, Ms. Estrella, like, you know, uh, they're just kind of going on and on, right? Like trying to get your attention, trying to get you to come like shop in their store because for you to be seen in the store would be like a big deal, right? How are you sort of managing that, Ms. Estrella? These are the sorts of people that she could do without offending. So I think she would be like... Frederick, that sounds delightful, um, but I don't have time just now. I need to head straight in here with my this uh, my cousin, who, as you can see, her clothes have been ruined on her journey. So we just need to just quickly head in here, uh, where I think they'll have something her style, and I will come to you another day. I love it. Um, just to memorialize this, Eve, I'm going to give you a condition called Toast of the Town. Amazing. <laughs> so you'll just write that on your little section called conditions up top. And it might be a problem later. Who knows? We'll see. Ms. Beaumont. <laughs> a sudden change in face of like, oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll see. We'll come back to the scene. This is fun. We'll come, we'll, I'm going to cut away back over to Sir Richard's flat. Now, Mr. Hart, you're entitled to a clue, which you're going to get. But it's seven to nine, which means there's a complication with the clue, either with the clue itself or something about the finding of it, right? And the complication, well, first of all, let's give you the clue. And if once I tell you what this is, if you if you want to just type it in the little clue section of the threat, that that would be great. Oh, in the threats, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you're poking around and you find a letter not within the stacks of papers and things where Sir, all Sir Richard's correspondence and musings and ramblings are, but rather you find a letter that is on like his little bedstand right by a closet. And I think that probably makes it stand out, gives it importance, right? And the letter is a letter of apology from an apothecary. He notes that we don't have that particular plant in our collection, I'm very sorry, Sir Richard. Perhaps we could find a suitable replacement. This is your clue. This letter from this apothecary, Sir Richard was trying to do something or find something in particular. The complication is the closet door slowly opens and an enormous jaguar steps out of the closet. It's one of those situations. Yeah. <laughs> the jaguar, you know, because you've been in the game for a long time, Mr. Hart, the jaguar is a fey assassin, an assassin from the fey court. How do you know that? Um, it's the eyes. I think they, no matter what they do, their eyes, they blink the opposite way around to mammals. Like so you'd expect it up and down, and it's, it's more like a, a, a lizard or a reptile that goes from side to side. Ooh. The jaguar reels back, clearly intending to spring upon you, this fey assassin. I think we're going to do what's called the day move. The day move is one of our basic moves. 
it says when you do something risky or face something you fear, and I think we're probably in both situations here, uh, name what you're afraid will happen if you fail right now or if you lose your nerve right now. What is the worst that could happen to you? That I'll lose somebody else in the room. Don't care about myself. Oh, interesting. So like maybe Jenny or even Granson might get attacked. Intriguing. Yeah. I like it. It's going to attack you. So do you want to fight back or you want to run or what do you want to do here? Yeah. Okay, yeah, the um, the walking cane that we haven't mentioned oh, yeah. yet is yeah. it was in the hand before I think I even seen the jaguar. It was instinct. It's, yeah. Go ahead and roll with vitality. It's my stats. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Let me remind myself. I think it was a plus two. Yes, it was. Here we go. Come on. Come on. That is more like it. I rolled an eight, so that's a ten. Yeah. Very good. You will defeat the thing. Uh, describe what you want that, or, or, or think about what you want that scene to look like. We'll come back to you in a moment. Granson, I think you're nowhere near this right now. Yeah, no, no, no. Thank God. <laughs> you and Jenny, you mentioned going outside maybe to get some air. So I think you and Jenny are kind of like on a little parapet or a little uh, balcony or something outside, mm -hmm. looking down into the street. And I owe you a clue. And she'll start to open up a little bit about Ms. Beaumont, actually, because recall, Ms. Oh. Beaumont was dating Sir Richard, right? So she would have known and seen Ms. Oh. Beaumont. And she says, Sir Richard wanted me to do some work for her, you know, help her out. He didn't have much use for me. And so to prevent me from being bored, or I suppose, or to earn a little extra money, oh. he thought I should go over to her shop and you just help her clean up and things. I, I, I don't know. I, I, well, I, I did for a time, but I had to stop. Oh. It, there were, there were noises, you see. Noises? Strange noises coming from the basement of the shop. Oh. Uh, they gave me a very, very queer feeling and I... I made my apologies and told her that I wouldn't be able to come by anymore. Uh, she's a lovely woman, mind you. A bit odd, but... O odd in what way? Well, she wears quite a lot of clothing for someone who is this fashionable clothing designer and seamstress. She is a bit um, eccentric in her look, in my humble opinion. She wears dress upon dress upon dress veil upon veil she layers up i mean she's practically like a sometimes she's practically spherical the way she goes about with all of her layers it's like she's trying to hide something but she was you good spirits when you gave in your resignation she wasn't sad or reactive she's always been very kind and she was very very sir richard was head over heels for her uh, but i just well i got a bad a bad feeling Interestingly, all this stuff she's telling you, that's not even your clue. That's just context. No, no, I know. So I'm like, yes, on. come on. Yeah. Clue. Granson doesn't gossip at all. She's just like, yes, and. Right. <laughs> the clue she gives you is she says, <clears throat> can I, um, well, <clears throat> you're going to think this is very strange. Trust me, a lot but of things around here are strange. Ever since Sir Richard started to date Miss Beaumont, We've had infestations of moths. Moths? Every night, moths just they're coming in through the, through the fireplace, through the windows, 
they land and get on everything they can get on. And I, it, 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 was, it was a devil to try to keep the place clear of moth corpses. I don't know what that's about. Oh. Ha- that's your clue. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'll take that. Moths. All right. Um, I, I, I think I'll just, I, I would follow up by saying sort of like, so this started what, straight away when they started? Uh, or when did you notice it? How, how long has it been happening for? At that point, she kind of takes your hand, or, you know, she kind of grabs you. She's a grabber. She grabs you when she's... No, I'm used to this at this point. (laughs) Yeah. And she says, there's that carriage again. And if you look down in the street, Mm, there's a carriage in the street, a grand carriage, an enormous thing with, like, gold detail filigree and, like, dark wood you know, like four horses. Like it's not the kind of thing that normally you see in London. It's it's like something for the country or the queen. She says, that carriage, I've seen it come by at least three times in the last few weeks. It it just sits there. I don't know who it is or what they're doing. Indeed. Um sorry, how far away is it from us? Is it like through some windows and stuff or is it like uh, or, I mean, you're looking right. Oh, we're on the balcony. Yes, apologies. Yeah. Can I guess? Can I see? Is a driver? Is a is a um, way into the, one of the windows? I can see who's who's watching. I think if you go down to the ground floor, you probably can. If you want to do that. Yeah, I'll be like, um, let us go to uh, the kitchen. Maybe a, a good tea for Mister Hart would be well deserved. And indeed. Yeah, head on down. <laughs> Mister Hart's got more in his mind than I'm tea sh- at the I'm moment. Sure he- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> we'll come back to this in a bit. Mm-hmm. So, Ms. Estrella and Ms. Fletcher, you do make your way into Hazel Beaumont's shop. Let's talk about it. It is the sort of thing where, oddly enough, weirdly, no one works the front of house. There are just beautiful gowns Six every day put on display on little pedestals all around. And if you want it, you come in and you put a bid. And if you win, it will be delivered to your home. The rumor is that Ms. Beaumont always knows your size. And so the dress arrives perfectly tailored to fit you, even if she never took your measurements. And as you go inside, I think... Well, first, Ms. Estrella, normally when you walk into a room, everyone's eyes go to you. But right now, everyone's eyes are focused on these six dresses. You might as well just be somebody off the street. What are the two of you doing? There's no no one in this room at all. It's just the dresses. Uh, well, there's shoppers, but people looking okay. at them. Oh. But there's no one, like, working. There's no one, like, no selling or doing anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's, there's a large... A large sort of like plum-colored velvet curtain that bisects the space. I want to clarify the the people who have gone missing. Have they been a mix of male and female? Yes. Yeah. In here, there is exclusively dresses, no suits. There is a suit. Uh, there. Yeah. Uh, I'll yeah make that more clear. Um, there are four gowns and two suits. Sure. Great. Okay. What's your play, Miss Ava? I'm happy to go snooping, but if you want to do anything more subtle-like, then... This is a very strange place. I agree. <laughs> Far too much taffeta. Ms. Estrella, someone actually, like, tugs at your sleeve and says, 
Have you ever seen a more beautiful ball gown? I mean, my gosh, the fabric. The f- <laughs> Sorry, Jason, go on. No, it's no, it's great. She, you know, this is just, this is just some middle class lady who's like normally would be like stuttering and with and stumbling over themselves at your beauty, like because everyone does. But here it's this beautiful emerald gown, right? That has all the attention. Well, um, I. And she's just reeling and repulsed by humanity. So try try and get some words up. <laughs> well, I suppose it is an un, a slightly unusual shade, but I, I'm not sure. It's I don't me. think I've ever seen a more beautiful shade of green. <sighs> well. Although I have to say, your eyes, they very oh, nearly compare. Oh, well, yes, um, I have been told they're unusual. Um, You'll have to forgive Mrs. Stray's flustered nature. She's had quite the tough morning of suitors and fauners and such like. Yes, okay, fine, fine, fine. Go and and make yourself, you, you know, go have a look at the other dresses or... Make yourself useful. Have a look at the suit if you want. God damn it, just... Oh, thank you and for just... your permission to go investigate. <laughs> yeah, uh, fine, fine. And I think Evie's going to want to try and understand what the fuss is about with these particular garments. And she's got, obviously, an overwhelming entitlement to the point that she... Um, if other people aren't touching this garment, she doesn't give a damn. She's... Um, so she's right up close. She's feeling this fabric. I think that's I a think perfect justification just... for searching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish. Yeah. I so I'm. I was going to say I think Rose was right, even though she probably wouldn't want to be right about <laughs> something as feminine as fabric. That it is taffeta, but it is much softer than you would expect mm. that to be ordinarily, and softer than it looks as well. But um, still holds its shape like taffeta, right? That's the of magic course. Of it, yeah. Right? yeah. Mm. And. Potentially, the closer Eve looks at it, the the more strangely the uh, the green seems to behave, almost like um, it's got like an oil surface, um, light playing different shades situation going on. But she's still that. not into it. Just to be clear, <laughs> <laughs> it's not my thing. But <laughs> I'm going to give you the information move roll uh, with I would say with. Actually, sensitivity, the way you've described the supernatural aspects of the cloth, I'll let you roll sensitivity. Good, because she's not uh, the best with deduction and reading or anything. So, sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so roll two dice one. and then add one. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just thought I should move the third dice out of my tray because Just she's privileged, but, yeah. but she's not that privileged, right? <laughs> um, I have five. Plus one. Or is that five total? Yeah. No, yeah, no, six. <laughs> Still a miss, regrettably. Oh. I think what happens here, I think this scene becomes like more insulting to you, Ms. Estrella. There are people, men, who are like, um, excuse me, miss, if you could just step aside for a moment, trying to like look at the dresses, right? <laughs> and... And you find yourself very quickly almost like being pushed to the periphery of 
what's going on here in the dress shop. And I'm going to give you another condition, a, a sort of opposite condition of your other condition, which is, in quotes, am I nothing special? Oh, my God. <laughs> or I'll ask you this. How do you feel, Ms. Estrella? How do you feel to be sidelined? How do I feel? By a dress. Confused. <laughs> Horrified. <laughs> bemused. I shall, like, let, let, nauseous. Yes, We'll keep the condition confused. I think that's good. <laughs> it's a roller coaster, I think, is happening in that several row shop. So much. Like, oh. You can mark a Janus mask if you don't want to deal with that condition, but otherwise it's not the worst outcome. It could be fun. It's up to you. No, it's it's fine. I have another I have another way of getting myself out of um, this hot horror. Oh, I don't know I don't know what you're talking about with this idea that that's not that bad. I don't <laughs> I does not. Uh, I don't get it. Wild so, Rose, while Mrs. Estrella is having uh, existential nightmare, what are you doing? <laughs> Over a dress. Oh, I'm going straight to that that plush red curtain, and I'm having a peek behind it. Yeah, do um, do the information move with composure, since you're presumably doing it kind of sneaky. I'd love to. Okay, that's an eight total. Very good. Um. I'll give you a clue. Let me take a look at my clue list. See what you might see. Uh, Here's an interesting thing. When you look behind the curtain, you are at eye level with a shelf. And on the shelf, there is a severed hand with a wedding ring. That's your clue. If somebody wants to note that, that'd be very helpful. Mm -hmm. The complication with the clue is um, not so much a complication as just a odd thing to notice. There is a, in this little back room, there is like a little uh, kind of spiraling staircase that, that goes down below the building. And you hear coming up from that staircase a sort of... How does that make you feel? Intrigued and slightly concerned. (laughs) Take a condition, intrigued and slightly concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Can I, how far away does it, this voice sound? It's, It's down below, wherever the stairs go, that's where it's coming from. Okay. This severed hand with a wedding ring. Uh, my short-term memory is just completely blank. Did you say it was in a jar, or is it just on the shelf? It's just sitting there. Right. I would like to try and take the wedding ring. Uh, you can, yeah. Put it in your personal quarters, even. <laughs> now, here I should mention, we haven't really talked about what the personal quarters things do, but now's a good time to talk about it. So... If in a scene it would make sense for you to have something from your personal quarters on your person, then you do. And if you can narrate how you're using that thing in your action, you get to roll advantage on your dice. So you roll three dice and take the two highest. Um, So that's kind of how that goes. So maybe start thinking about how you might use some things from your personal quarters to help give you advantage. That ring might be useful when you're parlaying with Ms. Beaumont in the future, say. Mm. But once you hear that noise and grab the ring, what do you do? I think I, I'm i going to lean 
out from behind the curtain and try and grab a glance at what Eva is doing. What is Eva do? What is Eva doing? <laughs> she manages to stop reeling for a, for a moment, looks across the room, and she sees a young man. She just shouts, "You!" and catches his eye, and he he just will immediately come over to her. Is he a worshiper? Yes. <laughs> oh, good. So the the undeniable has a move called giveth which you can basically just find worshippers in the scene. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So we'll come back to that. That's great. Uh, I like it. Let's, we'll, we'll come back to this moment. Mr. Hart, please describe how you dispatch this fey assassin. Sure, I will. Uh, before this, I'm, I, I see I have a move, A Hunter's Life, where mm-hmm. if I um, use my weapon to dispatch this thing, stuff happens. Can I use that or is it too late? Let's read what it says, because I don't remember. Um, Your entire life has been filled with lessons in slaying beasts. Engaging in physical physical combat with a supernatural creature is always vitality, which it is, it was. Um, You also possess your hereditary weapon. Name the weapon added to your personal quarters. Okay, so you actually don't need to because you got a 10, unless you want to mark it in order to bump it up to a 12, because a 12, you get a little bonus on the the roll. That's what I I would like. By all means, you can certainly do that. And plus, I love ticking boxes. (laughs) Tick a box. So it says, when you use the weapon in physical combat with a supernatural creature, you can mark the box to describe how the weapon has been modified to be particularly effective against fey creatures. How so? So the hereditary uh, weapon, which is called Requiem, by the way, is um, currently uh, a sword cane and uh, inlaid within the the thin blade within is uh, various things, but one of the things inlaid is iron. And it's uh, like there's a a single shot of iron um, that that run down the centre of it, perhaps to give it a lot more strength. I love it. Go ahead and describe the scene of dispatching the uh, the absolutely Um, this jaguar uh, bursts out from the closet in a full kind of pants and if you were to slow this scene down Jonas who is still kind of hunched over and uh, trying to put on the persona of a smaller man just suddenly appears to have become twice the size and fill up twice the amount of space and with a fairly neutral expression on his face, his arm kind of grabs this thing by the neck, flings it using its momentum across the other side of the room, and without air pause, takes three long, purposeful steps over to it, unsheathing his sword cane, just runs it through with three steady motions um, into its guts. With the other hand, picks up uh, an iron fire poker that he had his eye on from the moment he walked into that scene. <laughs> and because it with sort of like, as though he's speaking by rote, uh, drives this poker up through the base of the Jaguar's draw, out the back of its skull, splitting the wall, pinning it there like, a, uh, like one of the other maybe animal heads around the room. And you can't stop a heart. And just leaves it there and just slags back down again to where he would usually be. Fantastic. Wipes, blood, sheaths, and just starts looking around the room like nothing's happened. 
A Hunter's Life also says that you must flash uh, narrate a flashback showing one of your ancestors destroying a creature of that type using that same weapon. Do that for me in a moment. Let's check in with Granson. Granson, mm. you now have eye level with the carriage. You can see inside. You can't quite make out the details unless you get closer, and you certainly can. Mm. But there is someone, a woman, looking out the window, clearly looking up at the balcony, up at Sir Richard's flat. And there are lots of people, like, handsome cabs are, like, piling up behind her, wanting to go. <laughs> and she's, like, just, like, this carriage just takes up so much space and just stopped there in the road, like, just blocking traffic. This is a person who clearly doesn't care about the, the easy passage of London's thoroughfares. So um, what do you do? Oof, uh, good question. Um, yeah, I'll sort it. I'll do it. Um, I will I'll be like, uh, one moment. If you get the teas ready, I'll be right back. I will go out of the out of the house, open the umbrella and make my way straight over to the carriage. Not stopping. You can see the woman now much better. She's an older black woman, middle-aged, but still very beautiful. And most strikingly, she has this choker necklace with a sapphire that is probably big enough to buy this whole block of buildings in value. And it just glimmers with this, it glimmers even, even with the dim light of the middle of the day in her being in a carriage, it still has a glimmer to it. And... She looks down at you and gives you like a small knowing smile. What do you do? Um, I will I will sort of bow and say, apologies, my lady. Um, unfortunately, there's been a terrible accident here. Um, we're not accepting any visitors today. Miss Granson, I didn't realize you were in the employ of Sir Richard. I was led to believe that you were the functionary of Mr. Hart. Indeed I am. Mr. Hart is paying his respects and is helping with the, the sort of, um, well, the cleanup. I don't know at this she point. Knows, you, she knows you. you don't know her. <laughs> oh, I know her, sorry. No, you don't know her. Oh, I no, don't she know knows her. you, but she knows you, but yes. she, you do not know her. Yes. And she says, how very interesting that Hargrave House is here investigating the death of Sir Richard. Have you stumbled across anything of note? Well, if you know of Hargrave House, you'll know that our investigations are private. For now, apologies, I didn't catch your name. No, you did not. Well, this has been enlivening. Do give my regards to Mr. Hart and to Miss Astrea as well. And she slides the curtain. And as she slides the curtain back, you think that even for just a moment, you can still see that blue glimmer of her sapphire and the carriage drives on. I don't, I don't suppose it's not one of those carriages that has like a, a license plate or anything like that. It's, it sounds like quite a rich carriage, so it doesn't have... It, any, it is. It it's, have it's, not like, it's not registered with the city or yeah, anything. Yeah, I was like, darn. Yeah, I watch it leave and then as soon as it turns the corner, I head back into the house. Let's cut back over to the shop. Wild Rose, are you gonna go? Are you are you done here? You got you, you swiped no, a ring. Going, I'm going down. I was checking to see what Eve was doing. Oh, she's busy. <laughs> going down the stairs, I think it's gonna trigger the day move. Uh -huh. Except it's gonna trigger the night move. Even though this is daytime, oh. 
you are going straight into the maw of something very bad indeed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I I shall... The night move says when you do something risky or face something you fear, in this case, I'm going to say face something you fear, name what you're afraid will happen if you lose your nerve. The curse will trigger. Of that. And now I have to say how it's worse than that. (laughs) The curse will trigger and you will attack Ms. Estrella. Do you wish to proceed? Yeah, I can't. I can't roll and then decide. Can I with the night move? No, I'm going to decide right now. Can I tweak it so I don't? I don't go down, but I stand at the top of the stairs. And I mean, this this noise is strange, but could be could be conceived as in pain or in needing of help. So maybe call down instead. But using in that, that case, I'll, I'll give you the information move instead. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead and roll. With, I mean, um, I, there's, there's no one else here. It feels a little risky this early in the game. <laughs> Maybe. As much as I like to poke the bear. Roll the information with the composure and yeah. see how it goes. Oh, uh, that's an 11. Ooh. Good. I'll give you your clue in a moment. Miss Estrella, per the move of Giveth, it says, this is one of my favorite of the moves I wrote. At any time, you can declare that a side character, which is just any other character, is secretly one of your worshippers. Describe how the side character subtly or not so subtly debases themselves before you in the scene and then scar your reflection. Okay, so how he he debases himself. Okay, Uh, so he comes over to me. And he starts to bow. As he rises from his bow, it becomes apparent that he's removed the blindfold from over his left eye to show a really hideous um, scar across his eye and then over his, the skin around his eye socket and an empty socket. Oh, so he does that, so, you say. Yeah. Um, I think I'd probably just... Um, he blinks at him twice and says, very good, okay. I can't believe um, I'm I can't believe I'm here in your presence, ma'am. This is this is more than I could have hoped for. I know, I know. So I would like you to do something for me. I would like Anything. You to, speak it. The um uh, the gown over there with the green and with the lace gloves. Um I need you to A shade of green gloves. that can't possibly compare with your eyes. Yeah, right, right, right. Yes, yes. The the lace gloves um, with the pearl buttons, you see those? Yes. Um, I need those. Certainly, anything. For a small task like that, he'll just do it. For a yeah. more over-the-top task, you can give him something for your personal quarters, but this will Yeah, I don't free. think... No, I don't think he... I don't think yeah. he needs any of my stuff for this. Yeah. It's just that. I'll give this for free. <laughs> um... He'll do that. I think there's no one to stop him because like there's like no workers. <laughs> so he just will like kind of go up and he actually like kind of gets a little like pushy with somebody who's looking at them. He's like, excuse me, and like pushes them out of the way and then pulls the gloves off and tremblingly gives you gives them over to you. Are you searching the gloves as a way of finding clues or? No, I'm are you just keeping them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
um so i think um i think she'll just i think she will just um turn around and leave the shop now i think it's possible that eve has entirely forgotten why she's here (laughs) (laughs) it's It's not yeah it's not that she's daft it's just that it's been a really intense morning (laughs) now you have to Um, scar your reflection and here's where we get to learn a little bit more about the undeniable you somewhere in london Hidden from the world is a masterwork created in your image or otherwise inspired by your beauty. It is guarded by a cult dedicated to your worship. What is it? It is um, an oil painting. Very good. How do your worshippers demonstrate they are unworthy to look upon it? They cover their left eye all the time. Um, The most dedicated will permanently blind themselves in their left eye. Very good. The masterwork will gradually degrade so you can remain young and beautiful and will bear the scars that your evil acts would otherwise leave on your soul. You've scarred the reflection. Please describe how the masterwork is changing for the worse. So in this portrait, um, Eve is just um, sat with her hands in her lap and they are not gloved in the painting. But what happens this time is that there is sudden, very noticeable aging on the hands. So the um, the skin softens, the veins are more raised, there are age spots. Um, they're still more beautiful than all of your hands, just to be 100% clear on that. But um, they're, um, they're monstrous in comparison to what they were before. Love it. We're going to start winding up the day phase here. So, Ms. Fletcher, I owe you a clue, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was your die result? Remind me. I was an 11 total. She's just leaning over the railing of the stairwell down and going, Hello, can I help you? Are you all right down there? <laughs> Here's what you get as your clue. There's no response, but you'll notice something on the top of the stairs. A sealed jar containing spider husks, bundled herbs, and a patch of human skin. If someone will note that for me in the threat, that would be lovely. Can I immediately tell from looking at the stuff inside, like, what the herbs are? Do they look distinctive, or is it like they've been chopped up real small? I would probably save that as context for whenever you get ready to theorize. You can, like, say, or whenever you get ready to answer a question, you can define what the herbs were to help your... Cool. Your cause. <laughs> I guess the, the line of thought yeah. is we don't have to define what the herbs are, but if I can tell what they are, I don't yeah. need to take the jar. If I, oh, I see what you're if saying. I, if oh, I can't God, tell yeah. exactly yeah. the contents, oh, the nature of the contents, I might swipe it as well. I would say that um, it is, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a variety of herbs and, uh, and various clippings and things. Yeah. Sure. But yeah. poisonous ones, nightshade. Okay. Yeah, cool. That kind of thing. I'll just Maybe make a mental note. Tomato I'll... plant. Yeah. <laughs> that poisonous tomato. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll make a mental <laughs> note and then I'll uh, I'll slip out. Go get my duster. Very good. We'll wrap up the day phase here with Mr. Hart. Please give us the flashback of the first time a heart used the weapon to destroy a fae creature. Certainly. So this scene takes place in the Palace of Versailles um, in a huge, lavish ball. 
um, there are dozens of partners spinning and rotating around an incredible golden ballroom with an um, incredible piece of uh, music um, that they're waltzing to. Um, and to the casual observer, it is the height and pomp of Versailles and a load of obscenely rich people dancing the night away. But in the midst of this, a subtle but no less deadly duel is taking place. Jonas's great, 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 great however many um, grandmother in a, a gorgeous gown is um, dancing with the most beautiful man in the room and uh, their spin, their eyes are locked into each other and small moves are being made. There's no sword cane in sight, but if you were to look closer, you would see the flash and uh, movement of a razor-thin rapier um, being wielded by his mother and um, a, a similar uh, weapon being wielded by this fae. And it, it, is a, it is a dance and a draw. And as the, the music uh, builds um, and the dance becomes to a crescendo uh, and the musicians play the final drawn-out note, um, suddenly um, whatever has been going on, uh, Jonas's grandmother has got the upper hand does a final uh, turn um, and a thin red line is drawn across the throat of this fay, and she says, you'll never stop a heart, turns and leaves as the music ends and this fay's head falls off and a great fountain of blood <laughs> in the middle of this ballroom leaps up, showering all the dancers and she makes a uh, exit within the uh, the cacophony that that causes. Amazing. Fantastic. Before we leave the day phase, uh, Ms. Estrella, you can note that that worshipper is called Jonathan, and you can call on him whatever you want. So. Thank you. Will the hunters of Hargrave House be able to defeat the threat of the spider silk seamstress? Find out next time on What Am I Rolling? The What Am I Rolling podcast was created, recorded, and edited by me, Fiona Howard. This episode's players were Nat, Strat, and Helen, some of the cast members from the Millie Roleplayers podcast, and me, Fiona. This episode's special guest GM was Jason Cordova, the creator of Brindlewood Bay, The Between, and Public Access. This episode's RPG was The Between, a tabletop role-playing game about a group of mysterious monster hunters in Victoria-era London. You can find out more information about The Between and get your own copy on the Gauntlet website, that's www.gauntlet-rpg.com. The theme music was 8-Bit March by Twin Musicon of twinmusicon.org, licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 license. If you want to find out more about the podcast, check out the website. That's www.wairpodcast.com. Fancy getting in touch? Email the podcast at whatamirollingpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at wair underscore podcast the latest news on upcoming episodes we also now have a discord which is very exciting so find the link to that in the episode show notes and remember adventurers need not apply